0: I was leaving the parking lot of Wesley Hospital last week and a a custom tag on a car in the lot simply read science. And I don't know what it meant, but it's not hard to make an educated guess, which is by the way what science is, it's a kind of educated guessing. And I've seen signs and bumper stickers since 2020 especially that say I believe in science and I've heard discussions, had conversations about the background regarding those statements. So the one word science on a tag in a hospital parking lot likely means to its owner science as opposed to ignorance, science as opposed to unreality, science as opposed to faith or religion, science as fact not fiction. But the signs, not that tag, but the signs generally say, I believe, which is a statement of faith in science. And belief has has different (coughs) contextual issues, so I, I believe this is the right road to take, which is belief not as certainty but as probability. I believe in you, you can do this. Yesterday I was watching my grandson play what was supposed to be basketball at the Y, but it was sort of hurting on a basketball court. And I can say, I believe in you, Ellis, but I know he's not going to make the shot, probably. So that's belief as moral support and certainly not as certainty. I believe in science, which is belief as confidence or trust. Again, not certainty. So confidence in who or what. I believe in scientists, but there are lots of scientists and they widely disagree, so it's hard to know what that means. What they probably mean is science as a method, and the scientific method is you have a question or a problem, you do research, develop a hypothesis, you do experiments, you analyze the data, then you report your conclusions. I read this last week. The scientific method is the best-known way to discover how and why the world works without our knowledge being tainted by religious, political, or philosophical values. That is a philosophical statement. <laughs> and so which science is doing science isn't tainted by religious, political, or philosophical values? Well, they all are. I mentioned last year a book I read in the fall, in the summer, What is Real? The Unfinished Quest for the Meaning of Quantum Physics. guy writes, he's a believer, he's not a believer in Christ. And at the, he, at the end of this long historical survey highlighting the world's greatest physicists as they search to understand at the very basic level how the world works, you discover there were tons of human egos and politics and competing philosophies and then strongly held belief systems, which everyone has a strongly held belief system, and they all collided and they fought for their own way of seeing the world. All scientists are religious in the in the. In the true sense of the word they have strongly held belief systems. even atheists they're all political they're all philosophical animals and all human beings are self-serving biased and sinful we're all tainted by that so it is the scientists who produce science not some method and in the book you're led down this long windy historical road at the conclusion of the book we find we don't know the truth about the quantum world we do know enough to do stuff so they can make cell phones We don't know enough to understand the basic constitution of the cosmos. We don't know how the world works, not really. And again, we can do a lot of stuff, but to say I believe in science, that's good, but not nearly enough. The author of the book ends with what I think is going to be humility. He says we don't know, and then he makes some declarations of what he knows for sure, things that others would disagree with. And it seems we can't help ourselves when it comes to making absolute statements, and I think that's because of our need for certainty In an uncertain world, it's uncertain for us, not for God. So very often, I believe in science means I believe in the science that I believe in. So I went to a hospital where people are sick and some are dying. I saw the medical science at work and I was grateful for it. I am grateful to live in a world where things are not random, but designed and ordered by God. So science is possible. He could have, if he wanted, made a world that's always shape-shifting and science would be impossible. Today the plane flies, tomorrow it doesn't. I'm grateful for image bearers, scientists who were designed by God to be able to reason, to imagine, to understand some of how the world has been made by God, and then to sometimes use their science to make it a better place. And I say sometimes because science is like fire. Fire can heat your home. It can burn your home to the ground. You can use your cell phone to pull up devotionals on on John. You can listen to music about John. You can memorize verses about John. You can use that cell phone to just destroy your life. So, in that hospital, there are people on sick beds and death beds, <clears throat> and these people have medical scientific questions, but they have much larger questions as well. And the larger questions are beyond the realm of the scientific method. They're not irrational or non scientific questions, they're just larger than the scope of human science. So, they're above science, not below it. And there are questions with answers that cannot be discovered, they can only be revealed by the maker of the cosmos, the one who made scientists and a world that can be understood at least partly through scientific method. So it never really is or should be faith or science. All humans in the end simply have to say, I believe. And everyone, even the science tag guy or gal, ultimately believes. Now, I personally believe in a certain eye medication I've taken for years. It's changed my life. I'm not going to sell it after the service is over. And it's not, an, it's not hyperbole. So after I came back from Iraq in 2009 for three years, it felt like someone had their finger in my eye all day long, and that was a problem for me. So I had a scientist, I went to several scientists, also known as ophthalmologists, finally found one who prescribed some medication, which is science, <clears throat> and what do you know, no eye pain. So what does I believe mean? It means I use the medication. I do something about my belief. And I believe in it for good reason, it works. And I believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. What does I believe mean there? Well, it means I do something about my belief. I have acknowledged him as Lord of my life. I'm trying to obey him and trust him. And I believe him for good reason, very good reason, historical, practical, personal, rational reasons. We all live by faith because we have to. We can only know certain things for certain if someone bigger than the cosmos tells us it's so. And John in his gospel gives us the single word he would put on his chariot tag, it would be Jesus. And by that he would mean, I believe in Jesus. And by belief, he would not mean mere historical facts. Again, they are historical facts, but not just that. A guy named Jesus did live and did do stuff in the first century, but his belief is more than that. His belief is not mere wishful thinking. I believe this because it makes me feel better. Sometimes the gospel doesn't make us feel better. It makes us feel worse so we can become better. It's belief as a commitment or a trust. Belief as a foundation for your life. Belief is certainty. If you remember in his letter, John wrote, I've written so you will know. Belief for John is not like I believe in science, as in this is our best educated guess for now. Belief for John is certainty because God, who's made the cosmos, has made himself known. And then belief for John is commitment. Since this is true... I can, do, I can do no other than to surrender my life to him. So if you remember how he began his first letter, listen to the certainty in this. We looked at this last year. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. There's a lot of certainty in that verse. The life appeared, we've seen it, we testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. So you may also have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So heard, seen, touched, testified to, experienced relational fellowship with. These are experiential, historical, rational, spiritual, relational realities. This is not fairy tale stuff. This is a stuff of certainty. This certainty does not discount the fact that our belief in Jesus is a work of God in us. But it highlights the fact that this is not just subjective experience, my truth and your truth. This is certainty based on broad categories of factual realities. All this God has done to make himself known to us. Today we begin in the Gospel of John. It was written to non-believers so they would believe and be certain they can be saved. John's letters, we found out, were written to believers, the church, so they would be certain of their salvation. And it's really, John is really a long evangelistic document. And you have to go nearly to the end to find out where John is. John tells us very directly why he wrote the book. He said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So what John is saying is he's carefully selected from all the things he had seen and heard from the life of Christ, and he's put them together in this document so his readers would believe and by believing have eternal life. And Jesus did a lot more than what John has written about. In fact, look at the last verse of his book. There are also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world could contain the books that could be written. This is hyperbole, but he's saying, I was selective. There's a lot more. So he's given us very selective history, biography, but not just that. He's writing a gospel. A gospel is good news, the good news that God's revealed himself in space and time. Christ became a man to save us and bring us eternal life. And so John selected what he's going to write because he's not just trying to tell a story or to inform or to amuse. He wants his readers to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Savior, and that by believing they would have eternal life. Our science tag friend believes science can change your life. So do I. It's given us the ability to drive cars, fly planes. This has changed human existence. It's given us the ability to talk on cell phones and live in warm homes. It's given us the ability to prolong life and increase physical thriving. Science has given me the ability to get through Days without terrible eye pain, but that science tag person doesn't believe in science as I believe in Christ. So, belief I believe in science, and then I believe as Christ as in a relationship. Christ wants me to know Him very much the same way as I would know other people, but in a different way to know Him as Savior and Lord. It's belief as a stewardship. Christ wants me to be faithful to him, whether by life or death. And when science someday fails me, when the doctor says, I'm sorry, Terry, there's nothing more we can do for you. Then my stewardship, my confidence, my life is not over and all is not in vain. As a follower of Christ, I would say I get the best of both worlds. I get science and faith, but that's not really accurate because there's not two worlds, science and faith. There's just one world. It's a world that our Father has designed so we can discover things about the world, science. And it's a world that He's designed so the most important things we need to know, only He can reveal. We can't discover them. So if I'm laying on a deathbed someday, I will die someday, but I may not get, make it to a deathbed. But if I'm laying on a deathbed and I'm, and I'm wondering, who am I? My life is over. It's behind me. Who am I? Well, Terry, you're an image bearer. Okay, but I'm broken. I'm, I have regrets from my past. Yeah, but, but sin is a part of your life. Sin separated you from me. Sin separates you from other people. And sin has impacted the physical world. What's the solution to my problem? Jesus Christ, the Savior. Or what's my purpose? Be faithful. How can I be faithful? I'm laying here on a deathbed. You can be faithful on a deathbed with days to go. Every bit as much as you could when you were in 20, when you are 20 running around the world doing stuff. Faithfulness is faithfulness. What happens next? Well, life eternal. New heavens and new earth. How can I know this? God is there and God has spoken. So when science tells me someday, Terry, we can do no more for you, I'm sorry. I'll say, well, thanks for all you've done. I appreciate it, but I've never put my ultimate confidence in you anyway. So let's go to John. Today we're going to look at what's called the prologue. Actually, the first three verses of an 18-verse prologue. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. The other gospels begin in a very different time and place. Mark starts with John the Baptist. Matthew and Luke start with the stories of the birth of Jesus. And John begins with the preexistence word, or logos of God. And this eternal word, he will tell us in verse 14, became flesh. The technical word is incarnate in Christ. And John intends that we read his whole gospel in light of this verse. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The rest of the book are the words and actions of Jesus validating, validating this very dramatic truth claim. And these words and actions that are going to follow are the words and actions of God. If this is not true, the book is fiction at best and blasphemous at worst. And there were, at John's time and there still are many wrong ideas about who Jesus is, And if you're interested in these various ideas and the different historical church councils that were assembled to address these errors, feel free to go read about it. The most famous ones in terms of Jesus' nature were at a place in Turkey called Nicaea in 325 and then much later at Chalcedon also in Turkey. But this is not a class on church history. We're not going to get diverted by all that. Our purpose here in worship is to... Experience the truth of God through his word to be changed by it. It's not information for information's sake. So in John 1.1, 1, 1, John calls Jesus God and the word. In the beginning was the word, the logos and the word, was God and with God, was God. So there's, this is two persons of the Trinity. And the God who exists is one being, three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. And his readers would have been familiar with that word, logos, the word for word. It was the creative word of God in the Old Testament. By which the heavens and earth were made. God said, Let there be. God spoke, and there was light and water and humans. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. So there was an Old Testament context that many of them would have been familiar with, but in the street language of the time, that word would have been thrown around. And people would have had different ideas of what it meant, but generally, they would have known it to be a word for the unifying principle that holds the universe together and makes sense out of everything. So he's saying, yeah, that thing you guys are out there batting around, philosophers are debating, that's Jesus. And Stephen Hawking's The Theory of Everything, The Origin and Fate of the Universe, this, is, this, is, this would be the Logos would have been answering Hawking. No, Hawking. no, Stephen, this is no theory. The Logos is the reality of who Christ is. He's everything. He's originator and the key to the fate of the universe. So John just throws us in the deep end here, just tosses us in the deep end. Very first verse. And so fortunately we can swim around in these deep waters without drowning and we don't have to worry about getting all all the way to the bottom of them because not being able to get to the bottom of them is not a problem. You don't have to have exhaustive knowledge to know God. You just have to have accurate, true knowledge. So I'm going to quote a couple of times from Wayne Grudem from his Systematic Theology. Jesus did not temporarily become man, but his divine nature was permanently united to his human nature. And he lives forever, not just as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, but also with Jesus, the man who was born of Mary, and as Christ, the Messiah and Savior of his people. Jesus will remain fully God and fully man, yet one person forever. So how can that be? Exactly. It's mind-boggling. And some say, I don't even know what he's talking about. Well, what he's saying is Jesus is God incarnate. Simpler words, but still mind-boggling. And I would say we should not be surprised that God incarnate is mind-boggling. We should be suspicious if someone presents this thing, this mysterious, amazing thing, as something other than mind-boggling. And throughout history, there have been objections to the New Testament teaching on the full deity and full humanity of Christ because people can't get their minds around it. So in 77, the year I graduated from high school... A book called The Myth of God Incarnate was edited by a man named John Hick, and I've read some of his stuff, and it was full of essays by by theologians who weren't believers. Go figure. And the title gives away the thesis, The Myth of Incarnation. So God incarnate in Christ was a helpful story for former, more naive, less scientific generations. Now that's ultimate chronological snobbery, as if the calendar has anything to say about what's ultimately true or not. We're not naive because we live in 1977, not 8024. Never mind that. Some of the most brilliant minds in 1977 and 2024, brilliant minds from all different fields of science, are believers in the Incarnation. And the starting point for these theologians calling the Incarnation a myth was their arrogant, unscientific presupposition. They started with, The universe is a closed system. There's no miracles like the Incarnation are possible. So a closed system means it's just a physical universe. It's just made of stuff. There's no supernatural outside the natural. So my thought is, well, why are you studying and writing theology if you believe that? And then how do you arrive at this conclusion? Because you're a human stuck in the cosmos. How would you ever know it's a closed system if you're in that closed system? If it's true the universe is a closed system... You wouldn't know it unless God told you it was so. And then it wouldn't be a closed system because God told you it was so. Jesus was fully God and fully man in one person. There's no contradiction. And if you start with the God who was there and miracles miracles were possible, even you would presume they would be a part of this universe, it's a paradox. It's a mystery. It's not a contradiction. It's one that we're not going to get our minds around now and probably never. This is Grudem again. Our proper response is not to reject the clear and central teaching of Scripture about the Incarnation, but simply to recognize it will remain a paradox, that this is all that God has chose to reveal to us about it, and it's true. And if we're to submit ourselves to God and to His words in Scripture, then we must believe it. And now someone may say, well, how can you believe something you can't fully understand? I would say, have you used a cell phone this week? You say, yeah, but someone understands cell phones. Actually, no. No one, no one understands at the quantum level how these everyday things actually work. The quantum world is still, for humans, a world of paradox. And paradox is two Greek words, para, like parallel lines, and dokia, which means to seem or to appear. And so a paradox is two things that side by side look like contradictions, but they don't contradict. They just seem to contradict. A contradiction would be Jesus is God and not God at the same time. A paradox is Jesus was fully God and fully man at the same time. So I would say here, don't let your hearts be troubled because your mind is blown. It's okay. paradox doesn't stop you from enjoying a cell phone. It should not stop you from relationship with Christ either. And those who find the doctrine of incarnation inconceivable have sometimes asked, well, could Jesus be a baby in a manger at Bethlehem and also upholding the universe? The answer is yes, he could. And if you reject that as impossible, you have a different definition of what's possible than God does. And to say, well, I can't understand it, okay, that's appropriate humility. But to say, it's not possible because I can't understand it, that's just arrogance. The incarnation is the most amazing miracle of the Bible. It's amazing. And so again, don't let your hearts be troubled just because your brain is. In truth, God's revealed it to us. This is not... Believe and throw away your brain. This is believe, use your mind, but realize your mind's not going get all the way around God, but you can have adequate and accurate knowledge about him, enough to be saved. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the remainder of his gospel, John's going to give us some of Jesus' dramatic truth claims. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the vine, the living water, the way, the truth, and the life. Before Abraham was born, I am. And none of those are I, I am A, light of the world, but they're all V. And then he gives some historical actions of Jesus to back up these claims. Jesus is going to turn water to wine. This is not just a cheap parlor trick. This is a very important first sign. He's going to heal a sick man who's about to die. He's going to heal a man who's been disabled for 38 years. He's going to feed 5,000 people through miracles. He's going to walk on water, heal a blind man Raise from the dead. All these are the things that that John selected from the many things he could have selected to, to demonstrate that his opening statement is true. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. So that we would read it, believe it, and have life in Christ. There are a lot of people who Jesus didn't heal in the first century. A lot of people he's not healing in our century. But these signs, these healing signs, they weren't the point. They pointed to the point. These signs pointed to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. That is a statement of utter rubbish or it's everything. And there's no middle ground on it. Think about that. It's either rubbish and we are wasting our time. Paul said, if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, then pity us above all people. It's either rubbish or it's everything. So let me look at a few applications for us. First, don't turn this into a mere intellectual exercise, but also the facts about Christ are important. So so we need to hold that tension. This is from John Frame. Our first allegiance is not to a set of eternal truths, as in Buddhism or Platonism, but to a person who lived in history to save us and who lives eternally as our heavenly high priest. But the personhood of our Lord does not mean that we can be indifferent to doctrines about him or to the content of his teaching. It's important first that we identify the true biblical Christ as opposed to false Christ. So there's a tension. We have to know Christ as he's revealed himself to us, but the reason for knowing the truth about Christ is to love him and obey him and to be saved by him. So if you can spout theology about Christ, but you're not growing in Christ's likeness, well, then you're way off track. Second, don't be arrogant and think you can know more than you do, and please don't become a heretic hunter looking for errors in others, and then sometimes you become terrified when there's error in ourselves. We don't; None of us has perfect knowledge. We have adequate to be saved. So Jesus said to be wise as serpents and be gentle as doves, and often self-appointed heretic hunters are neither wise nor gentle. If someone rejects the truth of Christ, Paul said we're to be gentle with them. Those who oppose you must gently instruct and hope that God would grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. If someone believes what's not true, then instruct them. If you believe something is not true, you find out, I thought this and this wasn't true. I'm a heretic. Well, then just simply say, got it. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to realign with what's true. I have a a friend who told me that recently his little girl was walking around the house singing this heretical song about Jesus. (laughs) It was biblically untrue. And he didn't panic and go, my three-year-old's a heretic. He just said, hey, come here, sweetie. Um, this is what's true. Okay, so she started singing a song that's true about Jesus. And she was teachable. If someone really is arrogant and combative and you feel like you've got to correct them, why would you waste your time? They don't care what you have to say. I mean, love them, but you don't, it's not your job to convince everybody. Now, you should be aware of what's true and not true. You should be wise as serpent, but as gentle as dove. So be calm, be confident, be humble. The gospel is the truth of God. Live with assurance, not anxiety, and not with aggression either. And then don't let your inability to get your mind all the way around the incarnation deplete your certainty about it. You don't have to live with anxiety. You can be confident. God clearly exists. Of this you can be certain. There is no science that has or will ever disprove God. That by definition can't happen. It's clear from the cosmos and from your own heart that God is there. God's put a GPS in your heart, Ecclesiastes 3. He's put eternity in your hearts. It's built into you. There's a reason why you have a hunger for God. There's a reason why people growing up in overtly atheist countries who've been told since they were children there is no God, their hearts hunger for God. God's revealed himself in Christ. Of this you can be certain. It's it's a historical fact, indisputable historical fact, but it's not just historical fact. It has real implication for your life. You can have relationship with Christ that transforms your life. Of this, you can be certain. So don't be intimidated by those who say, explain the incarnation to me, and then mock when you can't explain it in a way that fully satisfies them. They can't explain the everyday world they live in adequately. Our finitude, our human limitations, they're not the problem. Our arrogance is. So live with certainty And not certainly because you're so smart, you can read theology or you listen to 10 podcasts. Live with certainty because God is good and he's made himself known to you. I read this verse to a friend who's in her last days this week. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I'll come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And that's certainty from Jesus himself. So have you committed your life to Christ? And if not, what's keeping you from making that commitment? What are you looking for? What kind of questions are you asking? And if you have committed your life to Christ, are you hesitant to just be all in? Maybe you're hesitant to be all in because you think you lack the information you need you really need to get it figured out. If you're a follower of Christ and you're half-stepping, you need to get it figured out, and not figured out in terms of complete understanding of the Incarnation, but that the Gospel is true, the Incarnation is a fact, and then you need to get on with a life of full obedience. You need to quit dabbling, get off the sideline if that's where you are. You say, well, I can't be all in because Christians fight and argue and disagree, and it's all confusing. Look, most of the New Testament was writing to address this very same thing agreements and disagreements it's not new the Bible's true jesus is lord we are his people faithfulness is our stewardship we need to just get on with it let's pray together talk to jesus about your struggles if you're not a follower of jesus or you're unsure about where you stand with him then talk to him If you're a follower of Christ and you're dabbling, then just talk to him. Say, help me to stop dabbling. Help me to get on with it. Just talk to him.